what worldly wisdom or what worldly teachers look like. And then next week we're going to see what uh, godly teachers and what godly wisdom looks like as well. It wasn't just because there was a shortage of Sunday school teachers. It was because too many unqualified, too many people who were not called by God to teach were stepping into the role of the wise and the understanding ones of the church. Friends, listen, in the first century, still like this today, if you could become a teacher of the church, you are almost guaranteed a vertical move in status. But because of these selfish motives, teachers were leading people astray through their, their errant teaching, claiming that they had special revelation from God. If you were alive in the first century and you wanted to become a teacher in the church, then what you would do is you would claim that you had been given special revelation from God and it was the way to climb into the position. But these groups of teachers were creating factions. They were arguing among themselves. They were leading people astray and friends. Worse of all, they were stifling the power of the early church. You see, James gives to the church of any age the marks of false wisdom and the marks of, of true wisdom. Previously, if you've been here for this series then we saw how we can discern through those who are or those who want to become teachers. We saw the call for teachers in the church. We saw the conduct for them that they should live a good life. And finally, James showed us the criteria for those who teach in the church. They must be meek. If you remember that word meek, now everybody look up here for a moment. The word meek in the scripture, in the NIV, it says humility. In the Greek, the word is really more along the lines of meekness. Meekness was when they would train a wild horse and they bring its power underneath their control. Before that, the wild horse had a lot of power, but its power was not manageable. So meekness is having strength and meekness is having power, but it's underneath the control of godly character. And now James zooms in closer and he shows us the root of both false teachers as well as that of wise teachers. And this morning we're going to look at what James does. He exposes worldly wisdom, its symptoms, source, and sickness. Now I hope you have your Bibles. Please bring your Bibles. We're going to be in the Scriptures every single week you ever come to this church. You're going to be in the Scriptures. You need to be making notes. You need to be writing and underlining. As you open up to James chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 14, 15, and 16. And first, we're going to see what are the symptoms of worldly wisdom. Now, friends, listen, if you've been here for a while, I'm not a very complicated preacher. I mean, if the Word of God says something, why confuse it? It's pretty simple. The Word of God is not simplistic because simplistic cheapens the quality of something. Simple reduces it to understandable parts. The Word of God is reducible, friends, by the Spirit of God to understandable parts. Here's what we say. Here's what we're going to see. The symptoms of worldly wisdom. Verse 14, it says this, But if you harbor... 
bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast about it or deny the truth. Now, remember, James is speaking to the early church, which is being divided because people people have gotten involved in teaching that should not be teachers. And they're bringing in wisdom that is not God's wisdom, but in fact, it's the world's wisdom. And James is exposing it. He's drawing a contrast here, but that means if you see the word but in scripture, there's a contrast being drawn. You see, he had just been speaking and writing about what godly wisdom looks like, what a godly teacher looks like, meek, good life. And now he's going to draw a contrast here. But if you harbor bitter envy, you know, what's really neat about James. James just doesn't talk about those who are in the church and who are leading people astray and who are teaching and ought not to be teaching, who are introducing wisdom that is not from God. He doesn't just talk about them. He's talking to them. Friends, that's a principle of grace. If you've got something that you see in somebody's life that is not of God, speak to them. Don't speak about them to other people. There's no room for that. Go to them and speak. But if you Harbor bitter envy. See, he just showed what the truly wise person's character was. Now he's going to show us what the character of those who are wise in the world's look like. Here's the first one, bitter envy. But if you harbor bitter envy, worldly wisdom is shown in their envy, their selfishness, and their boasting. Listen to this. This was an actual bulletin insert at a church years ago. Quote, last Sunday... We fell below the 200 mark for the first time in 13 weeks. Our 200 plus attendance mark has been stopped at 13. It happened. Now listen, this pastor wrote this. We fell from grace. Let's set the stage for a brand new decade by getting geared up or graced up rather again. This was a New Year's Eve bulletin. This doesn't make for a very appealing environment, does it, for you to step into to worship God? We fell below 200, so we fell out of God's grace. Mark Twain once mused, a cat that sits on a hot stove lid won't ever sit on a hot stove lid again, but it probably won't sit on a cold stove lid either. Friends, how many of you, and don't raise your hand. It's rhetorical, okay? It means I get the privilege of asking you questions and you sort of think about it in your mind. How many of you have been in church contexts that have been very, very graceless? I know I've been. I had a pastor once tell me Super Bowl Sunday, told the whole church, of which I was one of 800 and said that uh, you, you want to. I'm expecting you here this evening for our Sunday service. Said the whole church. Says I would certainly hope that Super Bowl on that TV does not replace church service this evening. All afternoon, I am wrestling with this guilt because I wanted, and we had a party that we we're going to go to, watching the Super Bowl together with Christian friends. But this pastor's words kept. Diving into my mind and my heart saying, if I do that, then God is going to be unfavorable towards me. And what would happen in my life if God is unfavorable to me? You see, friends, listen, you've been in graceless environments before. And it can do something. And even the best of us and the most mature of us, it can sow seeds of legalism. 
But if you harbor bitter envy, James is referring to those teachers who are filled with bitter envy. They were harboring her friends. Listen, that word harbor means to hold possessively to envy. They wanted, here's what it is. They wanted more respect. They wanted success. They wanted authority. They wanted better and more successful ministry than anybody else in the church or any other church. One time early on in my ministry, I was not even a pastor. I was a lay leader leading a small group in a young married class in a large Baptist church. And I had a small group. And three other men had their small group. And the whole group, the whole hundred of us in that class would meet. And then we'd split into small groups. Friends, every week I dreaded that because I wondered if more people were going to go to the other small groups than were going to go to my small group. You see, that was bitter envy in my heart. And if I harbored that, and if I held possessively to that, then believe me, your service this morning would have looked a whole lot different. That's something the Lord had to mature me through. Whatever it takes, these teachers say, whatever it takes, my ministry must succeed. One pastor from southern Seattle wrote a letter to several members of his church. They were contemplating leaving. Many of us have left the church before. He said this, as your pastor, I warn you that you are headed for the bottom of the sea. Do you have God's permission to lead, leave this assembly? Listen to this. You could lose your souls through this. The devil could take you down, down, down. I ask you to repent before God. Follow your pastor. Stick with him. Stay in the boat and God will forgive you. God called you here and I am your pastor. No one else. You must follow me or you will answer to God. Friends, that was a letter that went out from a pastor to people in his church who were thinking of leaving. These are the types of teachers that James is talking about, filled, harboring, holding possessively to the bitterest of envy. The word envy by itself, by the way, is neutral. Did you know that? Envy is not always a negative. It can mean the desire to imitate something you may, it's something you may feel when you observe some picture of goodness or greatness. When I'm around men that love their wives and love their children in such an exemplary fashion, it stirs within me a greater desire to be like that. That's envy. And it's a positive view of envy. But James added the adjective for us to understand. He's not talking about the positive view of envy. He's talking about the negative. He's talking about bitterness, bitter envy, which was a word that word bitter was used to describe a fruit of the vine that was so unripe that they used it for mild poison. It's this envy that gets into your soul and it stays there. It's that bitterness, the Hebrew says, it springs up by which many are defiled. It's that harboring, that junk that's in our hearts that says, I want to succeed even if it causes you to fail. You see, those who harbor bitter envy have no concern for those that they slice to ribbons with their judgmental tongues. They're filled with misguided zeal that causes quarreling and strife. This is just the first one, bitter envy. James goes on, though, a second one, selfish ambition. Look what he says, verse 14. But if you harbor bitter, bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts. And remember, he's speaking to these false teachers that are claiming to have wisdom from God. But in, in reality, they're separating and they're affecting their congregations. That word, that phrase, 
Selfish ambition originally came from one Greek word. And that Greek word has evolved throughout time. Originally, it meant those who spun thread for hire to make sewing thread for seamstresses. The word evolved into those who actually sewed for hire. And then it evolved again to those who did anything for hire. Day laborers, day laborers, friends, in the first century and before were people who would get up early, early, early in the morning and they would stand by the gates of the city and standing by the gates of the city symbolized or signified to all those who needed to hire work for the day that they were available. And so they would be hired for the day. They would go out and work and they would receive their wage at the end of that day. That's what this word came to mean. Anybody who did anything for hire. Finally, though, and this is where we're at today in this word. The word changed one more time and it entered the political arena. It means any. It means those who would use any and all means to gain its ends. That's what that word means, the way that James is using it. These are people, these are men in the church who would say, they, they, it doesn't matter what it costs as long as they succeed. Whatever it takes, I'll do it. There's a pastor from Anaheim, California, who preached one time to his people. He said, quote, people in this church, don't you say anything about each other? I can say anything I want. I can tell you anything I want because I have the responsibility and the accountability according to God's word for each and every one of you. So when I get in your face, receive it from the Lord or let your tail wag and go home and cry, go try and find a TV pastor so that you can turn them off and on anytime you want. Friends, that's bitter envy meets selfish ambition. Possessively harboring it. Selfish ambition makes sure that the door kicks you on the way out. It drums up support, not for the gospel, but for me. Are you with me or are you against me? You need to pick your side because there's no middle ground. This, friends, is what selfish ambition is. Guys, this is what was happening in the early church. This is what James is dealing with, with his pastor's heart. He says, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Boast and lie. Let her see it's not on your outline. Bitter envy, selfish ambition, and boasting and lying. All these are products of of worldly wisdom. You see, you can see the process here. Now hang with me for a second. Some desperately wanted to have authority in the church. The desire, friends, listen, the desire for that authority ruled their lives. You know, I was just at a pastor's conference this past week. I went went for one day. It was our Eastern District Association conference. Very unlike a lot of conferences that I go to. Oftentimes, here's what happens. You want a glimpse into a pastor's life. You go to these conferences. And guess what the topic inevitably, it seems, goes to? The three B's. How big is your building? How many bodies are you bringing in? And what size is your budget? You know, you know what that does in my heart? I'm just going to let you know what it does in my heart. I'm not sure. I've never really talked to another pastor about this. I know in the youth team, Lehigh Valley, when I was a youth pastor, we refused to talk about those three numbers because we were aware of what they could do. What they do is if somebody's got a bigger building budget and bodies in their church than I do, then it makes me feel like I'm doing something wrong. And if I've got bigger budgets and bodies and buildings than somebody else, it makes me, makes me feel like, you know what, God must be pretty pleased with me. 
It makes buildings, budgets, and bodies equal to success in Christ. And friends, that's wrong. That is what bitter envy, that's what selfish ambition, that's what all of this was doing in the first century church. And James is desperately leading them to redemption. He's leading them out of this. See, the word boast means arrogant. It's empty of glory. It is to empty ourselves of everything but our own glory. It is to think that there's a quality to us that in reality is just not there. See, James had just taught that wisdom creates meekness, right? Remember that power under control, meekness. James just teaches, it just taught that wisdom creates meekness, which is a word used for breaking that wild horse so that it's useful to the owner. Here, here, now look at the contrast. The people were arrogantly boasting that their superior wisdom was from God. God's wisdom produces in me a humility that says, I don't need to put myself forward. I don't need a glory and exalt in myself. But the world's wisdom says, if I'm going to get a leg up, then I've got to bring glory. I've got to do whatever it takes to succeed. I've got to exalt myself. Have you ever had someone trumpet their opinion with these five words? Here they are. Ready? I have prayed about it. Those might be the most detestable five words I've ever heard. Because all of a sudden, what that really is, you have no more opinion. Because I've prayed about it. And God has spoken to me directly. And so let me convince you of the authenticity of my revelation. Should we be praying and should we be proclaiming our prayer? Certainly. But should we allow that to close the books on dialogue for wisdom? No. This is one of the ways Christians often put weight into their opinions. When churches are divided in rivalry and discord, the the divided parties and their leaders insist, friends, they always do. They insist that they are on the side of righteousness, that God is leading them in this way. This is almost always the case, yet the fruit of discord has a different source. Here it is. Number two. We looked at number one. Under marks of a worldly teacher, we looked at the symptoms of worldly wisdom. Now we see the source. Verse 15. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly and spiritual and of the devil. You see, the source, friends, of the worldly wisdom is clear to James. And throughout the New Testament, there are three enemies that every one of us has. You know what they are. The world, your flesh, and demonic. As for you, Ephesians says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. There's the flesh in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. There's the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. There's the demonic. We have three enemies that are seeking, number one, to destroy your faith. Do you realize that? You have enemies that are seeking to destroy your faith. And we have enemies, friends, that are seeking to destroy this church. We have an enemy that says, you know what? The church is going to prevail. That's what, that's even Christ's own words. But you know what? We can seriously hamper their effectiveness. And you know how our enemy hampers our effectiveness? It does in a lot of ways. Let me ask you this. How many of you are busy? Raise your hand. Go ahead. How many of you are busy? Raise your hand. Everybody look around. 
I think the number one way that Satan hinders our effectiveness is through busyness, which is a byproduct of all three, the flesh, the world, and our enemy. James, in effect, walks into this holding cell and he lines up these three people, these three objects as criminals involved in the creation of this worldly wisdom that produces the fruit of envy and discord. Number one, let's look at it. It's earthly. Today's more of a teaching sermon. I want you guys to learn it is earthly. Worldly wisdom is earthly. It says in 1 John 2, for everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the father, but from the world. Friends, listen, boasting, cravings, lust of the eyes are all stirred up and increased by the world. In fact, the, the number one objective of advertising is to put in you desires that you did not even know you had. That's what advertising does. That's what our world uh, promotes. Let's put into you a, a desire that was not there before you saw this advertisement. James is arguing that their wisdom and understanding are not from God, but are from this world. Wisdom, friends, wisdom that the world gives has no place in it for God. Did you know that? I'm going to say it again one more time. Wisdom that the world gives has no place in it for God. The world is against God. The world opposes God with all of its power. And whatever man can accomplish and theorize and discover purely by himself is a world's wisdom. Friends, that's what it means to be earthly. It means to be grounded in what this world can offer. But secondly, it is unspiritual. It's a rarely used word. It's only found four other places in the New Testament, this word unspiritual. It describes a person that possesses life. Now listen, possesses life, but is empty of the Spirit of God. That's what it means to be unspiritual. You're alive, but there's no redemptive life in you. You're alive by the world's standards and your soul. It's alive, but there's no God in it. That's what it means to be unspiritual. Unspiritual wisdom is the wisdom that comes naturally to fallen, unredeemed people. If you've read anything about secular humanism over the last 100 years, this is what this word means. It means to be devoid. It's alive, but devoid with the life of God. It's taught in the classrooms all over the world. Thirdly, it is of the devil, or literally, it means to pertain to demons. Friends, is there any creature... Any creature who is more envious and selfishly ambitious than Satan. If Satan is creating wisdom that people are clamoring for, it is no coincidence that they will be filled with bitter envy and selfish ambition. False teachers, his workers are spreading the world's wisdom and they are getting it from demonic forces. How many of you believe, and this is one you can raise your hand, how many of you believe that Satan has false teachers all over this world? How many of you believe the false teachers, teachers could be all throughout churches? This is why we're preaching on this. This is what James is saying. Be discerning about the wisdom that people are claiming. 2 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. James, Paul's fear was that our minds would be led astray. 
For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. This is what Paul writes. They're all through the church. They look great. You sit down, you turn your TV on. And are you really discerning what the wisdom that that person or persons are giving you? Is it God's wisdom or is it the world's wisdom? Is it filled with bitter envy? Is it filled with selfish ambition? Is it earthly? Is it unspiritual? Is it of the devil? But there's one final point that that, that, uh, James teaches us, and it's in verse 16. It's the sickness that worldly wisdom causes. Now, let let me just pause briefly and have your attention for just a moment. You know, there are a lot of pastors who, when they preach, they sort of skip through and around verses that they don't really like. There really are pastors that do that. I'm sorry to say that about my colleagues. But there are pastors that won't preach every verse of the Bible because, A, maybe a verse is difficult or it doesn't match up with their theology, or C, it it bears consequences to their own ministry. Friends, I'm in the C category. This is about me foremost in the church. I understand the weight of this. And I understand that if I were you, I'd be looking at me and saying, well, let me see about Pastor Tim. Let me ask about his wisdom. Let me examine his life and his family. I understand you should do that. I would do that if I were you. But this is something I believe so important that if we're going to grow and if we're going to be powerfully redemptive in Easton and Nazareth and Peaburg and beyond, then we better have a church that clings to and leans on the word of God. And you better be a people that is able to be like the Bereans and hear me preach or Tim two weeks ago or Jack last week and go back into your word and say that was right. Because worldly wisdom creeps inexorably into a church and it causes a sickness. Here's what James says. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Friends, a church cannot be redemptive. A church cannot be powered by the gospel when it is filled with envy and selfish ambition. Its effectiveness for the gospel is muted. Its witness is tarnished. You know what the world thinks when a church implodes? Do you realize that the world is watching? We've asked a question around here quite a bit. If our church were to blink out of existence, would anybody in our community even know it? You know, I'm I'm getting convinced that the community would know it. Number one, parking would be easier. And I personally now know the manager of Wawa. He would definitely notice. But how about those 80 to 90 people coming on Monday nights? How about those women who are being ministered in the prisons? How about those children at the Salvation Army? How about your neighbors? How about your jobs, your coworkers, and your schoolmates? I hope, friends, I don't know, but I hope that this church is profoundly affecting your life so that you know and you can't sleep at night if your faith is not living out in actions because something ought to be troubling you and Pastor Tim is going to be irritatingly in your side from the pulpit week after week because faith isn't faith if it's not found followed up with action. The sickness that worldly wisdom causes is rife with division. 
There cannot be factions and divisions. If a church is to be a powerful institute bringing hope and help to its lost in the community, it can't. You know what my greatest fear as a pastor is? This is my greatest fear, bar none. It is that slowly and slowly and slowly division and disunity will find its way to our door. I've been in churches where that's happened. It's as bad it feels the same. The symptoms are identical to divorce. Churches are falling apart all around us in our country, friends. It's almost always from within. We're not like the first century churches where our homes are being taken away and there's persecution and you're losing your jobs because of your faith. When churches fall apart in America, almost always it's because division and selfish ambition, doctrine is being muted. It's it's within. It's why our entire board, I don't know if you know this, but our entire board to a man is grappling with a book called Humility. Because we know what selfish ambition, we know what bitter envy can produce. It always produces discord and parties, factions, and evil practices. It's why we're so careful when we select those who lead and teach. Because those people are powerful, they are influential. See, friends, listen, worldly wisdom produces envy and selfish ambition, which in turn creates disorder and ungodly living. Did you know this, the word disorder? has a fundamental meaning of instability. You see, in unstable congregations always end in disorder. It is what the word double-minded means. Worldly wise people demonstrate double-mindedness in their lives. James just taught us this in chapter 1. He who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Double-minded congregations are unstable. Wisdom is given. This has got to be one of the most undertaught and probably wrongly taught words that I've encountered in Christendom. Wisdom is not the facts of the particular decisions that you need to make. Oh, Lord, I've got to make this decision. Should we buy St. Peter's church or not? God, give us a sign. That's not wisdom. Wisdom is the unifying power that takes our faith that God is leading us, our God can provide, and translates it into, I will then follow Him. That's what wisdom does. Wisdom's the glue that matches faith with deeds and makes it stick. So when you pray for wisdom, if you're praying for particulars, you're asking then, biblically, for understanding. That's why the Proverbs combine these, wisdom and understanding. But when you ask for wisdom, friends, you're asking God to help you live out who He is in your life. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is given to make a single-minded and stable Christians living out the knowledge of our God. Worldly wisdom produces instability. Instead of building redemptive community, the worldly wise teachers were dividing it. And rather than give respect and honor to one another, they jealously, jealously coveted with each other's positions and created factions and competitive groups. If we were worldly wise teachers, then I would have been asking what the attendance was when Pastor Tim preached two weeks ago. What was the response, Tim? What were people saying? Jack, what, what were people saying about your preaching? That's what worldly wise people do because they're rife with bitter envy and selfish ambition. 
By the way, if you want to know if I ask those questions, come talk to me later. <laughs> Let me finish this up. I'm very close to ending. He says this. Go back and read that verse 16 again, if you would, with me. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. That word practice, friends, is where we get our English word pragmatic. It means something that is done or something that will be done. You see, friend, this is what James is saying. Wisdom always produces living. Wisdom always produces action. Godly wisdom produces actions that are done in meekness and in humility. Worldly wisdom produces actions that are done in selfishness and result in the life of evil. In other words, James couldn't be clearer. Absolutely nothing of ultimate good results from human worldly wisdom. Let me close this with these thoughts. Why is this important? Why have I gone over time <laughs> to teach you these things? Do you read Christian books? Do you read self-help books, Christian or secular? Do you listen to Christian teachers on the radio or the television? Do you listen to talk shows? Do you watch talk television? Oprah, Ellen? I'll pray for you. Do you ever receive or give advice to other people? In each of these, friends, listen, I'm almost, I'm about 10 seconds being done. In every one of those examples, there is a transaction of wisdom that produces behavior. But friends, I'm wondering, can you discern godly wisdom from worldly wisdom? James is helping you be able to do that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the patience of my friends and family here, allowing me to go over. But God, thank you that you teach us. Your teaching is clear. Lord, I'm sure I sometimes muddy it up, but it is clear and the Spirit of God can lead us into all understanding. Lord, give us discernment as a people. Give us understanding. Give us wisdom. Lord, may we be a people that deeply know you and broadly live it out. May the Great Commission meet the Great Commandment. God, I pray for that. And in Jesus' name, amen.